Let me read beginning at verse 12 to the end of the chapter. And now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel, of course Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here am I. And he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to their father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on the way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, the price of a slave, by the way. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This is this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth, put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Amen. Let's pray for just a moment. Oh, Lord God, your word is truth. Sanctify us by your word. Open our hearts. Make us believe it. Make us love it. Make us have great joy in all that you have for us. Lord, sometimes your ways are challenging and difficult, yet they are your ways, and so they are good. You work out all things together for good. So give us joy, cause us to be grateful, and give thanks in all things at all times, for we are your people, the sheep of your pasture, shepherded by the good shepherd, even Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.
Well, except for Benjamin, who is still yet a child at this time, Joseph was the youngest son of Jacob. He was uh, the youngest son with ten older brothers. Can you imagine having ten older brothers, ten perhaps bossy brothers? Well, as the, the boy of the family, still just a lad of 17 years old, he was assigned a lot of the menial chores, the things that men didn't want to do as sort of the gopher of the family. And yet, Joseph was proud. He was a bit spoiled by a doting father. And he didn't take kindly to being the, father's, to being the family's water boy, so to speak. He, he deserved better. He was his father's favorite. He was the, fa- he was the firstborn son of, of the favorite wife, right? And then he dreamed a dream. He dreamed of a life where things would break his way, a happy life where he would be prosperous and fulfilled and full of joy, where he would be exalted, where he would be in charge, where he would be the one giving the orders, where people would look up to him. He was going to live the dream. What young man or what young woman doesn't dream of greatness, of being in some exalted place? of being a remarkable success story, of being the greatest in the family. And yet, we who are perhaps a bit older know that life has a way of crushing those dreams. Life can take you in its claws and rip your dreams to shred as an eagle that swoops down and grabs a rabbit in its talons and, and tears it apart for its next meal. And what do you do when that happens? What will you do when your dream is in tatters? Joseph, in an Egyptian prison, cruelly taken away from his father and his brother whom he loved. His home, all that was familiar, he must have looked back and wondered, what happened? I can imagine him thinking thoughts not that much different from Fontaine's. There was a time when life was exciting, when Joseph was young and bold and unafraid, when hope was high and life worth living. There was a time, and then it all went wrong. The time was right now, the day the tigers came, when his brothers rose up against him, and when his life changed forever, when his hope was shattered, and maybe he thought, I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living, so different now from what it seemed, and now life has killed the dream I dreamed. Some of you might be living right now with a shattered dream, a grievous reality. If not, you will. And how will you cope when life comes against your dreams, like a lion attacking its prey? I've seen people, and I'm sure you have as well, choose divorce, alcohol, drugs, yes, even suicide. There was a day when the sons of Jacob were pasturing a flock, but Joseph stayed home with their father. Now, Jacob couldn't possibly have been blind to the growing tension between the son of Rachel and his other sons. Certainly there were harsh words 
between the brothers, there were certainly scowls of, of bitterness and hatred, perhaps even the bullion that sometimes marks brothers. Uh, we're told that they couldn't even greet one another in a pleasant fashion. They couldn't say shalom, that Hebrew greeting, to one another. Well, the bitterness and antagonism that had become a serious division in the family. It was past, really, the point of no return. But God was about to work out an amazing number of seemingly random actions and events in order to fulfill His plan for Joseph and for Jacob and for their family. God's Word will be fulfilled, but in a way that neither Jacob nor Joseph could ever have possibly imagined. So go ahead, Joseph. Dream your dreams. Dream your fantasies. Dream of greatness. But you can't know the journey upon which you will travel to get there. That began with Jacob sending Joseph to find his brothers to see if it's well with them. Literally, to see if it was shalom with them. To see if it was shalom with their flock. Well, we see that brothers had taken the flock originally about 50 miles north to Shechem, which was familiar to, to them because that was a place where they had previously lived for a time. Jacob had even purchased a piece of land there from a man named Hamor, who was a Canaanite, and he erected an altar, and he called it El Elohe Israel, God is the God of Israel, claiming that land, the land of Canaan, as belonging to Yahweh. Perhaps there's a bit of a, a foretaste when Israel would indeed possess that land as the land promised to his descendants. But we learned they didn't stay in Shechem, which not incidentally was the place I mentioned last time of the brothers' murderous rampage, which they committed in revenge of uh, King Hamor's son who had raped their sister. And so they could not have been in that city in that area without being noticed, and they certainly would not have received a, a very warm welcome. And so they left, but they didn't go home. In fact, they went even further away. They went another 20 miles north to Dothan, we learn, right? Well, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Jacob had been concerned about his sons. They had been gone a long time. He wanted to know if, if they were well. Were they healthy? Were they strong? Were they safe? And so he sent Joseph to to inquire about their welfare and bring back a report. But Jacob could not have uh, known how much Joseph's brothers had it in for them. I mean, did, did Joseph know? How could he not have known? Was he foolish to go? Regardless, Joseph traveled 70 miles to go searching after his brother, inquiring about them, asking, where are they? It took some effort to find them. And I think this shows that he was truly interested in his brother's welfare in spite of the tension, in spite of the, the acrimony between them, and he certainly was honoring his father's request. He loved those who hated him. In fact, that would be proven, we'll get to there some years later. And see, as a Christ figure, he was seeking the lost. He was doing good to those who hated them. And once he found them and... Even when they made their intent known, he was, what, like a sheep led to the slaughter. He was silent. He did not open his mouth. He didn't resist those who meant evil toward him. 
Now, let's keep in mind that Joseph's dreams were from the Lord. They were, they were a bit of a word of prophecy that God had given to Joseph to reveal something about his family's future, and that Joseph himself would have a very unexpected but significant role in that. But remember also how outrageous a thing it would have been in that patriarchal society for a, for a boy, for a son, to rule over his father and mother. Unheard of. Crazy. Okay? And that's why Jacob at first reacted rather negatively to hearing about the dreams. The second one in particular, where he was uh, over his parents. Um, but also, we read that he kept the saying in mind. For Joseph was the son of his old age. It's a designation connecting Joseph, actually, with Isaac, the promised son of Abraham and Sarah. When they were very old, when they were beyond the age of childbearing, and so Jacob, it seems, might have been expecting Joseph to have a key role in the family as the promised son, the one through whom the promised deliverer would someday come. Of course, later on he would be proven to be wrong about that, but yet, nevertheless, he watched and waited to see what God would do. But the brothers, of course, had a very different reaction now, while Joseph was certainly obnoxiously boastful about what that word revealed, yet it was the word of God, and it was, it was the word of God that the brothers were trying to escape, even as years later, Israel would reject Jesus, the word of God. John said he came to his own people, and yet his own people rejected him, did not receive him, in spite of his testimony of his powerful word and his great miraculous, powerful deeds, they rejected him as the promised Christ and refused to have that witness. But God was working. God's invisible hand of providence was directing these events. Notice the contrast between verses 12 through 17 and then 18 and following. It's stark. And it's really meant to be. Joseph, Joseph traveled all that distance, all that time to walk and wander through 70 miles searching for his brothers, incurring whatever inconvenience and, and trouble and weariness, perhaps even danger, to find his brothers and find out, is it shalom with them? Is it well with them? But when his brothers saw Joseph com coming, they could only inspire or conspire evil against him. They desired to commit this despicable act. It says, before he even came near to them, before they even knew why he was coming, had no idea, and yet they plotted to kill him. Notice what Jacob's sons said. Verses 19, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what become of his dreams. See, their hatred and bitterness was focused, what? In particularly on the dreams that Joseph could be exalted over them. Ridiculous! Come on, really? Because if there's one thing a human heart cannot, cannot abide, it's really uh, submission. It's, it's someone having authority over them. We hate humility. We don't like submission. We don't like deference to others. And yet, these are the very characteristics that the people of God are to have, right? We are called to submit to one another, to love one another, to defer to one another, to, to look to others as better than ourselves. 
We are called to die to self. But the brothers would rather kill Joseph that they might live. And they, and they thought by killing Joseph, they would end any possibility of him having some, uh, some righteous rule over them. Even as centuries later, the sons of Judah would conspire to kill Jesus, to remove him from among them, that he might uh, not be any longer the favored one. Well, Reuben was apparently away from the brothers for this time, and when he returned, he heard their plans. He said, <laughs> no way is that going to happen. He was determined not to let Joseph die. Not that he was a man of honor. His motive was probably self-protection or self-preservation even, because who would be responsible if Joseph were to perish? Reuben. He was the oldest son. Okay, he would be the one held responsible. He didn't want to bear the brunt of his father's wrath, and so he had to find a way to, to stop his brothers. And so we read, they stripped him of his robe instead, symbolically what? Stripping him of his authority, stripping him of his favor, stripping him of this love, this special love that he had uh, from his father and with God. But for Joseph, it had to feel like the shattering of his dream, even as when you drop your favorite coffee cup upon your granite countertop and it shatters, which I happened to do about a week or two ago. <laughs> well, then Joseph's brothers, or rather Jacob's sons, well, Joseph's brothers uh, conspired to deceive their father by dipping Joseph's robe in the blood of a goat and asking their father, hey, do you recognize this? Who might this belong to, Right? Interestingly, Jacob being deceived by a garment, even as he once deceived his own father by a garment, right? And Jacob fell into complete despair. He refused to be comforted as if he lost his only son. Here he is in front of other sons, and he despaired as if he lost his entire family. At the same time, the scene shifts to Egypt. And we discover that Joseph had been sold to Potiphar, who was, of course, an officer of Pharaoh. So what will you do when your dream is shredded by cruel people or cruel circumstances? Now, keep in mind, historically, that this book was written by Moses for Israel in the wilderness, following the Exodus, following all those years of oppression and slavery in Egypt, okay? So they knew what would happen. They knew that things would be bad for Israel, but they wouldn't stay bad. They wouldn't stay in Egypt forever. God was working out all things according to the counsel of His will. What's really interesting, and we, we can't fail to notice, is all the events in this narrative that had to work out for Joseph to end up in Egypt, Okay, Jacob's sons had to go far enough away and be gone long enough that Jacob would be concerned enough about them to send Joseph, his beloved son, to inquire after their welfare. And Joseph, of course, had to be home and be willing to go and travel and go through all that trouble and difficulty to find his brothers. And Joseph had to meet the man who guess what? Just happened to know where Joseph's brothers had gone. And when Joseph found them, the brothers, they had to be on a major travel route 
to Egypt. Reuben had to step forward to try to save Joseph's life, but also had to be away when his brother saw the caravan. And those travelers had to be willing to buy Joseph as a slave, and they had to be willing to sell him to uh, Potiphar rather than keep him for themselves. And they had to be successful in deceiving their father with a robe. Wow, that's a lot of coincidences. Or something else. It's God's working out His plan exactly as He intends. And yes, yes, those circumstances brought a lot of pain to a number of people. They incurred loss and difficulty and struggle. But even that, dear ones, was part of God's plan. Paul would write many years later to the Philippians from prison, his own struggle, his own pain, and he would say, my imprisonment is for Christ. Well, Joseph's imprisonment would be for Christ as well, but of course, he didn't know that yet. Well, the fact is, God is working out His perfect will in your life as well, sometimes even using cruel people and sometimes even using cruel circumstances. I love the hymn, and we'll have to sing it someday. In 128, God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. By the way, the sea and storm represent, in the ancient times, dangers, okay, difficulty. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain. Always remember that behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. You know, the two most powerful words in the English language put together, I think, are the words, but God. Just two, three-letter words. But God, but His omnipotent goodness overcomes evil. Years later, years after this chapter, Lord willing, we'll get there, Joseph himself would say to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation." But don't be afraid. Why? Because I have overcome the world. There's not one thing that has come or will come into your life that God has not ordained for your 
eternal good. Paul said, and we know that God works out all things together for good to those who love Him and who are called according to His purposes. You know, Luke would tell a story of two disciples who are walking, maybe even wandering a bit, in a state of confusion and despair. They were going to a village named Maus. But perhaps, I don't know, maybe they just needed to stay busy. Maybe just needed to walk somewhere just to get out of Jerusalem, get away from that horrible place, or at least the place where that horrible event had happened, the place where their dreams and hopes were crushed. They, of course, were disciples of Jesus. And they had come to hope and to dream that Jesus was the one who would redeem Israel, that He was the hope of Israel. It had been so many years, centuries actually, since Israel had stood strong and independent. And Jesus seemed to be the one who had changed that. But He was crucified, and He was dead and buried. And as He was hung upon that cross, as they saw His bleeding, bloody, wounded body, their hopes were just crushed, smashed into smithereens. And then a stranger came upon them. They didn't know at first it was Jesus. Not until later would they discover that. But the gentle shepherd of broken people said to them, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into His glory? Think about that saying. Think about what He just said. Jesus' intense suffering and their suffering, their loss, their pain, their tears were necessary to know a much greater gain. Paul said, this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Maybe you have the wrong dream. Do you dream of things that actually oppose God's will? Things that will be to your harm rather than to the good that He intends for you, His beloved child? What we don't understand as Western Christians is that suffering and affliction and pain and struggle and loss, these are normal Christian life in this world. Yes, it's even God's plan. Paul said to the Thessalonians, no one should be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. And then in 2 Thessalonians, Paul was boasting about these Thessalonians, their, their faith in enduring persecution and affliction. And then he made, he made this astounding statement regarding that suffering, that persecution. He said, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Did you hear that? Enduring suffering for Christ actually proves your sonship. 
It proves that you are part of the family of God, that you belong to the one who is or was the suffering servant. Paul wrote that in Romans 8. He said, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He said, provided we suffer with Him. See, God also uses our imprisonment, whatever that might be, whatever suffering, whatever loss, whatever affliction, whatever need we have for the glory of Christ and for our good. And in the end, faith and hope will triumph because Christ has already won the war. He already has the victory. You remember in Acts 2 when Peter was preaching his, post, his first post-Pentecost sermon. He said, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See, the paradox of the gospel is that God's victory comes through suffering and loss. The very things we try so hard to avoid. For this reason, James exhorts us to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And what's the effect of steadfastness, according to James, according to the Spirit of God? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Christians in other countries, like India and China and others, they expect suffering. They anticipate it. They know it's coming, and they know that God uses it powerfully both to sanctify His people as well as to build His church, to expand His kingdom. And they are more than willing to suffer for the cause of Christ, for the glory of Christ and of, and of His kingdom. Why aren't we? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is what? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Beloved, that means that every aspect of your life Every moment of your life should be focused on those two things, to glorify God and, yes, to enjoy Him as we are glorifying Him. And suffering has a major role in our lives in displaying the gospel. Even as Paul in prison wrote, what has happened to me, his loss of freedom, his enduring harsh conditions, this was not some you know, first-class prison with TV and air conditioning and whatnot. Okay, this is a very difficult condition. He said, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I mean, do you really want to be removed from the very circumstances that will do the greatest good in glorifying God and expanding His kingdom and in sanctifying your own life? See, we need to have the right dreams. We need to have God's dreams. And when we do have those dreams, we may find whatever prison we are in, whatever suffering, whatever loss, whatever need we have, will cause us to rejoice in the Lord with great rejoicing for the work it is producing, for the victory over sin and unbelief through faith. And so King David, remember the man after God's own heart, he wrote, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. 
he said, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, the things that are the desire of the heart of every believer. Are they not the cherished things of God? May His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. O Lord God, You are great and awesome and mighty, and You have all wisdom and power and dominion. And Lord, we are so lacking insight. We are so lacking knowledge. We, we don't know what will happen this afternoon. We certainly don't know what will happen next year or 10 years from now. And so we can be afraid. We can be troubled. We can be fearful, O oh God. But you know all things. You do all things well. And you are working out your purposes in every one of our lives and all of your people, throughout all your church, throughout all the nations, to the glory of God, to the glory of Christ, to the building of your kingdom, and to our sanctification that we might be, that, that Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. Oh God, be praised. Make us submissive. Make us joyful in these things. We are troubled. We have tribulation. But we must not be afraid because our Christ has overcome the world. And we pray in His name. Amen.